Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. So, so I think that the 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 coercion piece is is is, is just it's a real powerful addition. Another thing that you, another area or sort of thing that you do in your research that I think is 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 really powerful is this is this focus on on routines. Um, and it's it's something we're we're actually doing at our agency now is trying to kind of get folks to to look at you know an, an individual routine versus trying to sort of you know solve all the problems of the day up throughout the entire day in all these different contexts. Um, and I know we're and I, I know part of the reason you you, you focus on a routine, um, you know, there there's uh, it, well, you're you're gonna you're you're gonna explain in more detail here. But I know part of the reason you focus on the routine is. You know, if you can find a really valued routine that's, you know, that, that sort of really means a lot to the family and means a lot to sort of the the family context and, and can make, you know, a really huge impact on their life. And often these tend, tend to be, you know, things like meal times or or or, you know, getting into a vehicle and getting out and going to an activity, things like that, that are, you know, that are often that often end up because the child's unable to engage in these sorts of particular routines the family is quite limited. They often don't get to leave the house ever. And, and, and it just creates a whole bunch of, you know, sort of um, um, ripple effect of, of, of sort of negative effects on the family. Um, and I think a lot of folks listening will have heard of routines and they'll know what routines are. Uh, but I don't know that a lot of folks really understand sort of where this kind of idea of routines kind of, you know, kind of came from and, and kind of the kind of conceptual basis, uh, you know, uh, that again comes from an area outside of behavior analysis um, uh, uh, that, the, that uh, I've, I've heard you label before as, as eco-cultural theory. Can you tell us a little bit about that theory? Yeah, absolutely. And it, uh, Ben, if I may, um, I, I, I actually want to do this. I'm so glad you asked. There was a last point I wanted to make, the encouraging point about behavior analysis. Is that okay? Please. Yeah, thank you. So I, I want to make a call out to the incredible work that's being done to some young behavior analysts and their mentors right now that I really think oh, yes. are pushing us forward into the very territory that I've been talking about, like really recognizing mm -hmm. the value of other disciplines and how it can sure. augment our work. And so here's an article. I'm going to just tell you about some articles and some of the latest uh, issues of behavior analysis and practice. Here's one that is just yes. coming out. Qualities of behavior of exemplary um, practitioners. These are behavior analytic practitioners by mm. Zayak and colleagues, 2021. Okay, so what they found through this study is in addition to behavior analytic knowledge and skills, the characteristics of really skilled behavior analysts were associated with compassion. They were client-centered, they were culturally competent, they were empathetic, and they were positive encouraging. Mm. That's a really wonderful finding. Totally. Um, there's a lovely article by Kelly uh, Greeny, Rosenberg, and Schwartz. Uh, they're at the University of Washington. This is mm -hmm. Eileen Schwartz and Nancy Rosenberg and, her, their, and their colleagues. When rules are not enough, developing principles to guide ethical conduct. And mm. what they're saying in that article is 
the current understanding of ethics for behavior analysts as instantiated in the ethics code is rule-based, which is mm -hmm. deontological. I mean, in terms mm -hmm. of the history of ethical thinking. And they're arguing that we have to, uh, to consider other theoretical frameworks or historical frameworks for, for ethics, like the theological um, philosophy of pay attention to the consequences mm. or the virtue one from Aristotle, Machianian ethics, which is develop qualities of virtue like courage and truth and fairness. Or mm. more recently, um, the ethics of caring developed by ethicists who are women in the 20th century, like Virginia Dare and Nell Noddings, that the ethical behavior is the one that doesn't harm relationships, right? Mm. And what they're arguing is that we should take a multi-lens view of ethical situations because they're not all black and white. And rules right. will not always keep you, you, you will, if you only follow rules, you will suffer the irony of doing something ethical from a deeper sense of ethics that goes beyond the rules that you've been taught. And I, I'm, I'm too close to this because I'm, you know, in my 60s, my father fought in the war, World War II. He was caught by the Germans and put in Dachau. He was in the middle of the Holocaust. <laughs> I'm familiar with, you know, different ways of thinking about ethics based on my cultural history as Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And... Um, I know that the Gestapo would go to the doors of people in, in different villages and say, you know, is your son home? <laughs> and my, my father was in the basement. Actually, actually it was the Germans. They came to the door. Is your, no, it was, it was, a, is your son home? And my, my grandma said, no, it's not home. Hmm. Of course, he's in the basement, right? Hiding. Um, they want to capture him and arrest him because he was 17 and working for the underground. And mm. I mean, if you go by deontological ethics in the one, you must tell the truth always, right? I wouldn't be here, right? So there is this, in, 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 during World War II, there was the notion of the good German. You just follow orders, right? No matter what. Even if the consequence of following orders was harm. And so, you know, what uh, Kelly... Greeny, Rosenberg, and Swartz are bringing to our attention is the importance of having a really broad palette of ethical thinking so you can make those subtle decisions within gray areas because there are gray areas in ethical thinking. I think that's brilliant. And I think the new code is beginning to recognize that. I think the leaders and mm -hmm. the young leaders in behavior analysis are beginning to, to recognize it and some of their mentors. I think that's really wonderful. Um, here's another article. The, the training experiences of behavior analysts, compassionate care and therapeutic relationships as caregivers. And LeBlanc, Taylor, and Marchese are saying, we have to learn about compassionate care. We have to develop really good, solid, compassionate, caring relationships with our clients. That's an important feature as behavior analysis now and into the future. Um, another article by... Bailu, Addington, and Almedia, behavior analyst training and practice regarding culture diversity, the, the case for culturally competent care. Okay, so the notion of being culturally competent, which requires you to have a more ethnographic, subjective understanding of why people do things. Because things that are culturally informed 
usually require not a behavior analytic perspective, but a more ethnographic experience perspective. Why are they doing that? Well, it has to do with their culture. Why is this Japanese mother not using praise? They're not complying to my treatment. Well, if you know anything about Japanese culture, a mother sees their child as themselves. We are one unit. We are one. If I praise my child, I'm praising myself. And that's completely taboo in Japanese culture. You never praise yourself mm. in Japanese. And if you understand that, you, first of all, you have to respect that because that goes back 2,000 years of culture. And then you have to figure out how to work with that. And I'm giving you real examples. I work with Japanese parents all the time here in Vancouver, and that's one of the potential obstacles we have to work through. Or here's mm -hmm. another one, and I'll end on this. Cultural humility um, within practice of applied behavior analysis by right. Mm -hmm. You know, learning cultural humility. The, the clinical psychologists have been studying cultural responsive practice for 20 or 30 years. If you look up SUE, S-U-E, and write cultural competence, you'll find many articles by SUE, S-U-E, about being culturally competent. And recently, a, a person named Hook and his colleagues have developed this notion of cultural humility. And basically, the message is this, and people in clinical psychology understand this. If you're working with someone from another culture, it's very important that you show cultural humility. And if you don't, you very likely will not be successful. So if you're working with a family from another culture and doing behavior analytic work, and you don't understand mm -hmm. the way their culture works and the way they parent yep. within their culture and the way they interpret behavior in their culture, the likelihood of you being successful has been diminished greatly. And cultural humility is the pathway toward succeeding with those families. And we've been studying that pathway with the families of different cultures we work here with uh, here in BC and having some interesting successes. And I'm not saying this to sort of, I'm saying that it's a necessity. I mean, 40% mm -hmm. of the population here is Asian. Yep. And so it's a necessity that we study this, not because, you know, I have some brilliant insight. No, no, I, I have to learn this. You know, mm -hmm. I have no choice. And it's been a wonderful thing to realize you have to learn this. So, so, so my point before going into talking about uh, the value of ecocultural theory and the activity setting of unit analysis is this is really a, a renaissance time in behavior analysis. Mm. New ideas, yep. fresh young people coming in with broader perspectives, uh, the notion of e egalitarian treatment, equity, um, uh, you know, removing racism from the way we do our work, um, mm -hmm. implicit bias, which sometimes interferes. I mean, the young people, the young behavior analysts and their mentors are doing brilliant work now, helping us truly become 21st century behavior analysts. And I just want to really honor that and hope that you may also do that. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, and, and I'll definitely share all that research in the show notes with folks. And, and I definitely agree. I mean, uh, the... Uh, the cultural component in particular has been, you know, uh, I, I think I think there's been a lot of great research that's come out lately. I mean, there, there's some other ones um, I think that you and I discussed last time we talked, like things like um, like uh, like Dr. Fong and and her colleagues. Oh yeah, um, yeah. You know, yeah, that's yeah, right. Developing the cultural yeah, awareness uh, uh, skills of behavior uh, anal analysts. <clears throat> yeah, call out Elizabeth Hugh Fong. Yeah, she's she's done some really good work. 
And then not necessarily a, a, a younger behavior analyst. I hope this doesn't, uh, you know, uh, come back to bite me by not saying they're younger. But, uh, you know, Dr. Singh and, you know, uh, you know, his amazing work in mindfulness has really uh, been Absolutely. people are grasping onto that, those ideas a lot more now. And I'm so glad to hear that. In fact, Dr. Singh, Dr. Singh is actually a friend of mine and, and um, he has convinced me that we have to bring mindfulness into family-centered PBS. And so right now, mm-hmm. when I work with families, I introduce them to three mindfulness practices, a sitting meditation, cool. walking meditation, and a loving kindness meditation. And the message is, there's two things you need to do in, in addition to learning how to support your child. You need to take care of yourself because raising children with disability is pretty stressful. The, the research shows that pretty clearly, especially children with autism. And a mindfulness practice has been shown to really, really help to diminish parental stress. Yes. Um, I mean, but the other thing that a mindfulness practice does is allow you to be present in the moment so that you can recall what to do. You can actually, mm-hmm. okay, I need to use a, a uh, antecedent strategy mm-hmm. now. Oh, I need to now. Yep. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to know the three secret words and enter them at cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop to purchase your CEUs. The first secret word is support. On to the topic of uh, ecocultural theory and the activity setting as a unit of analysis. You know, I can tell you the beginning of that. This is, I'm sitting with George Singer. I'm a doctoral student this 1991, perhaps, and I'm sitting with Dr. Singer. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a reading with him. And, you know, Dr. Singer is quite the scholar. He's quite the visionary. I'm sitting in his office and, and... we're mm-hmm. talking about like how do we really, really help families? How do we promote like transformational change? Like how do we really, really um, work through all the challenges and all the complexities? And we we were attending to some of the work done by Ronald Gallimore and his colleagues down at the University of California, Los Angeles, and we asked them to send up some of their manuscripts. I mean, articles that weren't published yet, mm-hmm. and they sent us some manuscripts, and we were reading them as part of the manuscript as part of the the reading, we would read them together and discuss them. And we had just read the article that they hadn't published yet. Now they had published one or two articles, but we're reading some of the new stuff too. And we're going, and and George goes, you know, the activity setting, the activity setting as a unit of analysis. And he actually said, Eureka, (laughs) you know, just like you might see in a movie, Eureka. (laughs) He said, that's the key. And this is why he said that. And this is why we began to see the the activity set in as unit analysis. And we began to do research with that beginning in the the early 90s and continuing until today. What ecocultural theory says, and this has been developed by um, cross-cultural anthropologists. So it comes out of anthropology, not out of behavior analysis. Mm. It also has links to Vygotskyan mm. theory, so it comes out of developmental psychology, but this mm. is what the theory says. Children develop within family activity settings of daily life. 
right? Whether it's getting up in the morning, having breakfast, going off to school, coming mm-hmm. home, playing nicely, you know, getting ready for bed, mm-hmm. sleeping through the night, going to the store with parents, going to, you know, visit relatives, maybe visiting a rest- restaurant once in a while, participating in, you know, re- cultural holidays, religious holidays, going to, you know, uh, uh, a worship service at a synagogue, a church or a mosque. I mean, this is where children grow up. I mean, this is what cultural anthropologists have discovered through research all over the world, watching parents raise their children. And all parents everywhere on the planet raising children, and they love their children, right? So that's one of the you know assumptions that you love your children. Then what you're going to do, and this is what most parents are doing, they work to create activity settings for their children, for their child, that is congruent with their child's characteristics, consistent with their values and beliefs and culture, and also sustainable within their home, their neighborhood, their society, you know, whatever resources they have to sustain it. They, the parents are always striving to do that. Now, what mediates the child's development in these activity settings is interaction with their parents. When those interactions are competent and you know loving, children develop. And what you see over time is the children grow in more adaptive skill complexity and cognitive complexity. And there's been research to show this. That's what happens. So isn't that interesting? So all families are... Really interesting. Yeah. All families are really striving to build these activity settings for their children. Most families succeed. I mean, there's like like 8 billion people on the planet, how many are families, maybe a few billion, and how many have children? You know, well, maybe most of them. How many of them need a behavior analyst to raise their child? How many need a clinical psychologist to raise their children? Most parents do a pretty good job. And we're working with a population where, despite all the love and care and skill they might have, or likely have, it's difficult because a child with autism has certain learning challenges. A child with Developmental disabilities has sort of certain learning challenges that the typical ways of parenting aren't sufficient to overcome, to solve, to work through. And that's where our behavior analytic knowledge comes in and our other knowledge about developing therapeutic alliances and promoting generalization, et cetera, and working through coercive processes. That's where all that comes in. But when you situate, but when you mm. situate yeah, yeah. this work. Within, acti- within a family activity setting, you're doing something really important, and I would even suggest profound, because the family already is trying to make it work. And these are called, from an a- anthropological or ethnographic perspective, social constructivist processes. That isn't a positivist reductionist view. You, 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 you observe these processes through ethnographic means, not behavior analytic observe and measure means because they're cultural, they're subjective, right? You have to attend to how the parent is interpreting the routine and what values they have and what their goals are and what their cultural patterns are to really understand why that routine is constructed the way it's constructed. Mm. So by Mm -hmm. working 
by identifying, and, and the other thing the theory says is all routines, no matter where you are on the planet, no matter what culture and have the same common elements, time and place, people, resources that they use, tasks, mm -hmm. tasks for everyone, not just the child, but also for the parent or the siblings, if they're there, or grandparents, if they're there. What are the tasks in the routine that everyone needs to do mm -hmm. to make it work? And finally, goals and values, which are purely subjective, right? You can't see a goal. You have to ask about the goal. You have to ask mm -hmm. about your values, right? Your cultural values and beliefs. And so we thought, okay, let's work with this. Let's, let's identify routines that are really important to the families that we're working with but aren't working. They're just, you know, unsuccessful. And let's have the family define them in, in regard to these six or seven elements of all routines. You know, when will it occur? Where will it occur? How long will it last? Who will be there? What will be the resources you use, like the common resources of family life for that routine? What are the tasks for the child, for you, mm -hmm. for the if there's a sibling, for the other parent, what are the tasks? And what are your goals and values? So we turn that into a vision and we say, is this your vision? If this, if you achieve this, would that, how would you feel about that? And the pair might say, well, I, I, I can't believe it's possible, but if it was, we would feel really good about it. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, you have a vision, right? Cause the family's like, whoa, can this really happen? Uh, they're, they're really like, whoa, that's a vision. Um, that's for some of the parents, it's a dream. Like it's a dream. How can this be possible? And then what we do is we work to, we take the pathways diagram, we, we, we do what's called a, a, a pathways diagram, which many of you might be familiar with, but it's basically the four part contingency setting events slash setting events slash mm. um, establishing operations, antecedent stimuli that occasion problem behavior, the problem behavior, and then the maintaining consequence, which has its function, right? That's the problem part of the diagram. Mm. That's the four-part contingency. Mm -hmm. And then we add two pieces to it. What's mm -hmm. a desired behavior, which is what everyone else would be doing in that situation mm. if they were competent and successful. And then what could be the maintaining consequence for that? Like what would be the positive reinforcer for doing the desired behavior? And then below the problem behavior, we put the alternate mm -hmm. replacement behavior, which is the functionally equivalent behavior the individual can do to get their function, right? So for example, if it's an it's an escape-driven routine and a, Makes and a dinner routine. It's eat the food and get some form of reinforcement for eating healthy foods. And for the alternative replacement behavior, it's, it's saying no thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, and the parent sort of pulls back the food, but they said no thank you. They didn't hit the parent or scream or run away. They use language to escape the food, at least for that moment, right? It's better than problem behavior. You can negotiate that mm -hmm. once the child's mm -hmm. using language. It, it's a step forward. So... Once we lay out the pathways diagram for that routine, just for that routine, we then build a support plan for that routine. So that has these benefits that we've experienced. One, it's their vision. Mm -hmm. It's their routine. They chose it. Now we play a role. And one of the roles we play is we make, we sure the parent doesn't pick the hardest routine. We, we want to find one that we're pretty confident you're going to succeed in. And that requires some strategic thinking. You know, if the routine lasts 12 hours, going to bed, sleeping through the night, we might not start with that one. But if the routine lasts 15 minutes, it's transitioned from school to home. Now there's something, maybe we can, you know, 
get a change going pretty quickly. So we might choose the transition home routine first because that's a place mm -hmm. where we can really help the family experience success and feel self-efficacious, which is really important mm -hmm. as, as um, um, mm -hmm. we, we've learned from the field of psychology. I think it was at Bandura, Albert Bandura, who taught us about For sure. the importance right. of self-efficacy. Yes. And so we, we begin, yep. so the first point is that it's their routine. They defined it. So they're motivated to make. So we, basically, if you want to talk about establishing operations for parents by finding a routine that they're very motivated to, to make successful, you have built-in motivation. You've got built-in buy-in. At least you have the beginnings of buy-in mm. because they really want this routine to work. Then the next thing you do is you make sure your plan can work within that routine. You help the family, you work with the family to design a multi-component support plan that is feasible and acceptable for the parent to implement it in that routine in terms of setting them in strategies, antecedent prevention strategies, teaching strategies, and consequence strategies. And then you make sure that the parent understands the strategies before you actually begin, right? You, you review it, you make sure it's clear to the parent what they would be doing. And maybe even you did it in a more Socratic way so that they played a role in developing the plan. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I can't do the whole, you know, four hour class on how to do that, but no. that, that's basically <laughs> what, we, what we do. That's we, great. We collaborate yeah. with the plan to build a plan that's technically sound and contextually appropriate. Now, because we did that, we have really, really increased the likelihood of buy-in, implementation fidelity, and durability, right? And so yeah. Yeah. now I'm going to borrow a construct from another field and also lay it here because it, I think it's relevant. In the business field, you know, when these business people mm -hmm. want to get a bunch of people to work together to create some product or maintain the quality of a product that they're selling – those who've studied organizational theory will say, you've got to create a superordinate goal. You've got to have a mission statement, a vision, mm -hmm. and you've got to help all your employees buy into it and help create it. And, and now you have a superordinate goal. Yep. Everyone's working for the superordinate goal. And that helps ego. It helps remove ego mm -hmm. and competition and infighting and gets everyone harmoniously aimed toward that goal. Mm. And so you create a superordinate goal, which makes it easier for human beings to collaborate, to cooperate, to do hard things together. So in some ways, that routine you chose is a superordinate goal. It's really important to the family. And the last mm. thing I want to – there's another layer here. There's several yep. layers here that are of a subjective nature that you could ignore at mm. your peril. But another thing is – you know, if you're a behavior yep. analyst, right, you might think, well, I'm an expert. And, well, you have expertise. There's no question. And you want to use that expertise. That's true, too. But what those in clinical psychology has found, especially uh, Carolyn Webster Stratton, Stratton out of University of Washington, is that you can't impose an expert model mm -hmm. on parents during parent training expect to succeed.
If you com communicate to a family that I'm the expert, your job is to comply to my expertise, you're not going to succeed very often. You'll succeed sometimes, but not often enough. What you have to do is have a collaborative model, right, where you're actually working as equals in terms of understanding the problem, building the plan, providing implementation support in a way that really works for the family that requires a, a collaboration, a mutual influence, right? And so when you define a routine as your unit of analysis of your goal, suddenly the larger field perspective, this is a larger psychological concept, fields perspective changes. What is in the foreground to the parent is their routine, their vision. And what is in the background is the behavior support strategies that allow it to work. But if you come in as the expert mm -hmm. and say, you know, the most important thing is what I know and what I'm doing, mm. then what you put in the foreground is you and your behavior analytic knowledge and strategies, which really are important, but but you, you haven't gone deeper into the system here to allow that to take hold. Because basically the message from the parent is I have to comply to this person who's coming to my home once a week. And it's not easy. Versus I'm really mm -hmm. trying to make this routine work and they're giving me strategies that help me make it work. And they're doing the best to do that. The foreground is everything you're doing is to help me achieve my vision versus everything you're yes. doing is getting me to comply to your knowledge. Yes. And there is a, there is a psychologically profoundly yes. difference in what happens when you do one way or the other to make this point. I'm working with a mother of a child with fragile X syndrome and she has certain strengths. She has a master's degree in early childhood education. So she's really, you know, she's got lots of knowledge and skill. So she's got this, and she's also of the Mormon faith. Mm -hmm. So she's got three other kids and her father sometimes is at home for dinner. So she's got to manage dinner with four mm -hmm. kids, including one mm -hmm. with fragile X syndrome who's engaging in, mm -hmm. and I do the functional assessment. There are four mm -hmm. functions operating in the dinner routine, escape, attention, tangible and automatic mm. reinforced. It's all operating. I mean, oh my goodness, boy, this is a challenge. Mm. But fortunately, I'm with a mother who's up to the challenge. So we create the behavior support plan. You know, we, you know, pathways diagram, build the strategies that address across all four functions. I create an implementation checklist. I model it first, because that's, I believe in walking the walk and not just mm. talking talk. I sat down and did dinner and mother watched. And of course, this mm -hmm. is what I do, you know, plumbers plumb and carpenters carpent and dentists dentists. And I, you know, do, do the behavior change stuff. So I sat down, I did the plan, it worked beautifully. So the mother could mm -hmm. see, yeah, it works. And so um, she did it and I did the coaching. I was there and it didn't take her much time at all because she's already a professional early child educator to implement the plan with fidelity. And now the kid has no issue at the dinner mm -hmm. table. Now the father's coming home. They're having lovely dinners together. The mother mm -hmm. is exquisitely implementing the plan. It's just lovely. And now we go, the mother tells me the story. Mm -hmm. I went off to, this is why I say this. Remember, what's in the foreground? The dinner routine. Do you think... So I'm going to ask you each of you a question. Mm -hmm. so yes, you know, it's this or that. This Is it this or that? Does she, when, she, when that routine's mm -hmm. working, is she mm -hmm. saying this to herself, 
wow, I've mastered 12 behavior analytic strategies. I can use setting event strategies so beautifully. My grasp of antecedent control is almost perfect. My ability to use direct instruction, model lead test is just magnificent. And my contingent reinforcement is so precise, I'm just delighted and proud of what I can do. Do you think that's what she's saying? Or do you think she say, the dinner routine's working. We're having dinner together and it's wonderful. So which one do you think she's saying to herself? That's the point. The dinner routine is in the foreground. The strategies are in the background and she's mastered them. Okay, so mm -hmm. then this is really cool. And this is the point about foreground and background. The family is on vacation now. They visit the grandmother's home, the children's grandmother's home, the maternal grandmother in uh, Eastern Oregon. Mm. And they're having dinner together. And the grandmother is at the dinner table. And of course, she's Mormon, she's very religious. And she sees this little boy, four years old, with fragile extradom, having a beautiful dinner. She, he comes to dinner, he sits, he eats the food, he complies her request. Uh -huh. And she never saw this before. She knew that it was really a problem, and she saw the problem previously. So she, at yes. the end of dinner, she goes up to her daughter, the, the mother of the child, and says, It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Because what did she see? Mm -hmm. She yep. saw a beautiful dinner routine, and it worked. Mm -hmm. Now, what did what she what did she not see? She could not discern mm -hmm. all of the behavior analytic things the mother was doing to make it work. Although she was using a visual transition first, then come to the table and you first eat something you really like to help him get off the TV or whatever he was doing. I mean, she doesn't realize that that's a a, a, mm -hmm. a visual contingency that, you know, prompts desired behavior. When the mother puts the ketchup on the um, peas, she doesn't know the mother is pairing a preferred condiment 
with peas that mm-hmm. aren't preferred to increase the value of eating peas. She's not noticing that that little cloth on the side of the boy's table uh, lets him immediately take the stickiness off his hands yeah. because otherwise he'd run, leave the table you know, and run to the bathroom because he doesn't like sticky hands and he's got this little warm, damp cloth and a lo- lovely little mm. glass bowl. He can in- immediately take the stickiness off his hand and go back to eating. She doesn't recognize all the things she's doing in terms of structuring the routine and creating motivation. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and she doesn't notice mm-hmm. that she's, mm-hmm. he's, she's praising him regularly, but also because of issues of equity, praising the other children too. So the children don't think that somehow this little boy with down, uh, fragile extreme is loved more than them. And that's the family systems yes. issue that was part of the plan to make sure the other children are getting more positive reinforcement too. So they don't think that you're, you, you privilege this child over them. The mother, the grandmother only mm-hmm. sees the routine is working. It's beautiful. So that's the, that's the thing about the foreground and the background. You want the routine to be in the foreground, the family's vision and your strategy is to be background. You're, in fact, a servant to the families. I'm going to do everything I can to give you tools to make your vision work. That's, that's a message that families really appreciate. You're here for me. You listen to me. You listen to, you helped me form a vision that I didn't think was possible. And you're doing everything you can to help me achieve my vision. That really turns things around in terms of buy-in and effort fidelity of implementation and durability. Mm-hmm. That's what we found. And we found this across all kinds of families, families, you know, with a high school education, mm-hmm. families with a, you know, higher education, rich families, poor families, families of different cultures, um, families with family systems issues, where we have to bring in other supports too. Um, so that they can focus on the routines we are working on. But there's another layer here because there's multi-layers that relate to why this has so much value in terms of our outcomes we're promoting meaningful, durable, and sustainable change is if what we know now is problem behavior at the tertiary level has many features of the problem. There's setting up issues, antecedent issues, learning issues around the teaching and consequence issues, both in terms of not sufficient reinforcement for desired behavior and inadvertent reinforcement for problem behavior, right? So your problem, your plan is going to need to be multi-component to solve these issues. And a plan might have anywhere from 10 to 12 strategies, maybe even more, right, across those four categories of strategies. To expect a parent to use 10, 12, 15 um, strategies with fidelity across their entire day, right? 16 hours a day, seven days a week is too much to ask. That's really hard. But if you ask them and you work with them and you empower them to use those, you know, eight, 10, 12 strategies in one routine that lasts 15 minutes or a half hour or an hour at most, because most routines last no more than except, you know, sleeping through the night, they last, you know, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour. You can do it. You can actually teach them cogently focus on building capacity within that one routine, right? And so now the family 
and you choose one that's easy, right? Maybe it only lasts 15 minutes. Maybe it's a half hour routine. You can teach that family through behavioral skills training and other such methods of parent training to, to, to make that routine work. And when they do, they will have experienced their success. I made a routine work. I did it. You didn't do it. I was the one doing the strategies. And you make sure you emphasize that for the family's self-efficacy. <laughs> if they say, thank you, thank you, you know, what do I do without you? You say, no, no, you, you, you implemented the strategies. I wasn't even there. You know, you made that work. I just drank your coffee. I um, mean, it's really good, by the way. Yeah, and it was go. under it was under ten dollars. So it's safe, right? A ethical coffee. <laughs> um, so there you go. And I, I ate the pie too, and it came out to it, it became out to nine ninety nine if you think about it. So it's still <laughs> I'm still in the clear. Um, perfect. perfect, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, you build that sense of self efficacy, and what's going to happen now when they tackle mm -hmm. the next routine? Will their confidence mm -hmm. be up a bit? Will the buy-in be a little stronger? You bet. And then because they mastered certain strategies, whatever plan you have for the second routine, because maybe the function's different or maybe there's different antecedents, so you build a plan for the second strategy that's unique to that. You, you build a plan for that other routine, that second routine, because it has some unique features that require some unique strategies as well as some from the previous plan. You help the family succeed in that routine. You empower the parent to make that routine mm. work. And now they got two routines yes. they made work. Right. And now they're feeling, whoa, I can change my child's behavior. So what's the other beauty about working in routines is it concentrates the challenge in the complexity mm -hmm. into a reasonable yes. space of time where they can experience success. And so that routine has a clear beginning and end. It's whole in and of itself. You've built one building block of change. And as ecocultural theory says, and as Vygotskyan theory also says, mm -hmm. family routines are the building blocks of family life. So one building block at a time, you're transforming family life. And when they can do a second one and put that other building block in place securely, when they have to tackle a third one, they're even more empowered. And what we have experienced, not with all families, but with quite a few of the families we worked with, after we worked on two or three routines, the parents spontaneously generalize mm -hmm. to other routines in their life. I'll give you an example. It's a bedtime routine. The girl has autism. She's seven years old. She's just beginning to learn to talk. She's pounding, whenever the parents put her to bed, she pounds her head mm. against, she cries and pounds her head against the floor. When I met her, she had a, a lump on her head mm. that looked like a, there was a little golf ball in her forehead and it was yellow. Sure. And, you know, it was starting, it was, you, yes. know, you know how that, when you heal, the colors change before all that pus goes away. I mean, it was pretty dire. We built a support plan for that routine. I was in the family's home, built that support plan. I, I was in Eugene, Oregon, this mother was in Vancouver, Washington, 130 miles away. Once mm. we built the plan, I gave her an implementation checklist, which yep. is a which is a like a point form of the plan on one page, two at most, yep. to help her self-monitor and self-manage implementation of the plan. 
the PBS plan, which there was a narrative, maybe a few pages that described mm. the strategies, but there was a point form for her to use on a daily basis. It only took mm-hmm. three. Mm-hmm. I only provided phone consultation from Eugene, Oregon mm-hmm. across the next three weeks. And she, she succeeded. She was the little girl, seven year old girl was no longer having issues mm. um, with um, the, the bedtime routine. She was going to bed peaceably and it was really incredible. Yeah. It's a big moment in that family's life. And then they had another routine taking a bath with sister because there was always fights and hair pulling and all kinds of issues. And so I talked through that one with the parent. We actually talked through the plan over the phone and she implemented it and she said, yeah, it's fine now. No issues with bath time. And of course I'm still in touch with her on the phone. I'm ready to go up if need be to provide more support because the, um, there's some payment through some system in Washington state. The next time I call her, she says, you know, Joe, we can wow. go to the grocery store now. I said, really? You can go to the grocery store now? Yeah. What did, yeah, I, I took what I learned with the first two plans and I applied it to this routine and now we can go to the grocery store. And then she kept hmm. on reporting, oh, we can go to the church now. Wow. We can go on a trip now. Because she, she take what she learned and she began to apply it to other routines. I'll give you another example. We work with another parent, severe food refusal behavior. It's not an easy change, but the father's the lead change agent. And it's, we, we have to work for actually a few months because, you know, as you may know, food refusal is really tough. But we succeed. I won't go into the details. That's another story. But we also work after that on a play routine, play with brother, because that's always a disaster. Little five-year-old girl with autism. Uh, this is a family who's Taiwanese, so they're de- dealing with some cultural issues too. I mean, we're trying to be culturally responsive and sensitive too. So the, the family succeeding, the dinner go- routine is going beautifully. The girl's eating, you know, meat and vegetables and fruit, all of which she rejected previous. She's staying at the table. She's having nice conversations with her parents because her language skills are really growing. The the play routine with the brother playing table games supervised by the father is going really smoothly. The parents have mastered these strategies for both routines or implementing with a high level of fidelity. The parents report to us on their own. This is a verbal report. So you can, you know, say, well, it's a verbal report. I don't buy it. Well, actually, I'm, I don't, I don't see, I, mm-hmm. I have never experienced mm-hmm. parents telling me untruths about what they are able to do next. Most of them, mm. they tell me, well, well, that's nice, but this doesn't work. That's nice, but this doesn't work. They're always going to the next problem, but not this family. It's like, you know, she's eating breakfast now. She's eating lunch now. She's able to eat her lunch at school. We Mm. went to a friend's house for dinner, and she had dinner with the family. We went to a restaurant, and she ate the food served. Mm. Meal routines aren't an issue anymore. And the mother said, you know, I'm having some really – I've been having really trouble with – the bath routine, she won't, she screams and tantrums when I try and wash her hair and, you know, comb her hair. So I'm going to, the mother said, I'm going to take what I learned and apply it to the washing hair and combing out the hair routine in the, in the evening. And she succeeded. Now the girl's completely fine with having her hair washed and combed out after taking a bath in the evening. And then they said, you know, We're going to enroll her in a swimming class, a typical typical swimming class with other kids. Mm. 
and she was completely fine. We're going to enroll her in. We're mm. going to enroll her in mm-hmm. camp because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. now it's summertime, like wow. you know, maybe for a few days or a week with typical kids. Really cool. It was fine. She was fine. The second secret word is dignity. We're going to take a camping trip, which we could never do. It was fine. She was completely flexible and responsive and really had a good time. Hmm. And then they said, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about weeks and months later, right? Months, even a year later, because they were moving in measured paces, taking what they learned and applying it to new situations on their own. Then they said, you know, we once went to Disneyland. And it was it was hell, you know, down in California. I mean, not not California it was. I mean, she was rigid. She was demanding. She wouldn't do this. She wouldn't do that. I mean, we came home totally exhausted and stressed out. But we're going to try again. We're going to take what we learned and go down to Disneyland. And they had a wonderful time. Neat. And I mean, if you need some evidence, they showed me the pictures. <laughs> um, so here's an example of a family struggling through really difficult routines too, mm-hmm. mastering the strategies because it was their vision. And they learned the strategies, even though they were counter to their cultural upbringing as Taiwanese parents. And they took them and they generalized them on their own with no additional support from us to their entire life. Mm-hmm. To the point where I'm doing two-year follow-up data because we'd like to collect follow-up data. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind waiting because I want to, if I'm, if I'm trying to build a, if one as a scientist is trying to build a method of supporting families, which you call family-centered PBS, that you say will, will lead to transformational change, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Meaning meaningful, durable, sustainable change. Yep. Are you going to collect three three week follow up data? Mm-hmm, right. Are you going to collect one month follow up data? Are you going to collect three months? No, no. If you if you say to a family, I have a method, a science based method, where after we're done, I can assure you beyond a reason reasonable doubt that it will endure for three weeks. Mm-hmm. What do you think they're going to say to you? <laughs> Would you would you buy a refrigerator for someone? After you buy this refrigerator, I can assure you it'll stay working for three weeks. <laughs> That's or one analogy, month, yeah, yeah. Or six months. Sure. You're not going to buy that refrigerator. No, no. You're not going to buy that behavioral support process. No. Or you'll be wary of it. Yep. And the fact of the matter is, very few of us collect data beyond a few weeks or even a few months mm-hmm. to show durability. But I'm a little crazy. <laughs> I don't mind waiting. So we went back at one year and two years. No yep. help to the family. We yep. weren't there. And we said, you know, I'm I'm renewing my ethics. Would you allow us to come back and do one-year follow-up? Yes. Mm-hmm. Would you allow us to come back and do two-year follow-up? Yes. And we did. And those routines were still going strong. And that's when we learned about all these other collateral effects because we mm-hmm. would interview mm-hmm. the family. Mm-hmm. What else is happening in your life? Mm-hmm. What, uh, uh, what You touched on a point that was going to be just one of my final question, and that's about sort of the, you know, the, 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 these, these, these long-term follow-up studies. What's because that, that's that's another thing I just love about 
about your work is that you actually show it's sustainable and durable, durable by going in and, and, and taking those data points. What's what are what are sort of some of the the, the longest kind of follow up measures you've done? Well, in in two thousand seven, we published a study that we began in two thousand four, mm-hmm. and we showed we gathered seven year follow up data mm. with a little girl with autism, and she was we have video of her five years old screaming at the dinner table, throwing her cup. Mm refusing to eat the food and then we have seven year follow-up now she's a teenager Mm. and she's you know she's acting like a teenager she still has a severe disability she's cooperative she's eating food but once she's done she's gone (laughs) (laughs) it's like i don't want to hang with my parents i want to go back and you know do whatever i want to do but she she was completely fine at the dinner table um so i have a family who we we collected two-year follow-up with uh, back in 2010. Yeah. And I know the routines still go strong because I still am in touch with the family because yeah. I have to – whenever I show video of the change, I have to ask permission. Right, get consent. Because, yeah. you know, I still have to – and so I they, – they and they regularly give me permission, mm-hmm. but I still have to ask. And so during those phone calls or those interactions or emails, they will share with me how things are going. And the message is things are going really well. Mm-hmm. They continue, and this is now 10 years later. Mm-hmm. So I would really like to ask these parents if I can do 10-year follow-up mm-hmm. data. And they, they could say no, and I can accept that. I'd have to go back to ethics and write up an, a, a little protocol and get permission. And go. Th- that'll be a little bit of work, mm-hmm. but I think it'll be worth it. Because I would love to show the world that this is a child at four years old who was echolalic mm-hmm. and wasn't hardly eating anything mm-hmm. and w- completely controlled his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then through this process, he became a, well, he still has autism, but he's a much more, he's functioning quite yeah. well as a young person now. That's really cool. It's really cool. Um, and, it, and he continues to require, you know, good support yeah. and his parents are good at doing it. Yeah. Um, but um, I would love to go back and videotape the dinner routine and the, in the uh, reading routine and um, the other routines we worked on. But, you know, that's up to the family. Sure, if they sure. say no, of course, I'll accept that. Um, I have another parent who, the one I told you about, they were able to go to on a seven. Did I tell the story about going on a seven-week tour of Asia? I think so, yeah. Yeah, you did. Yeah. yeah. I would like to go back to them and also collect 10-year follow-up mm-hmm. data. And I think that they would allow me to because um, they're champions of PBS. They've actually – the mother actually went with me to Taiwan to the first um, Asia Pacific PBS conference. Oh, yes, of course. A few years ago. We traveled together to Taiwan and we presented together as co-presenters cool. her success, um, which was wonderful. And that's, that's an example of uh, – back in 1991, a person named Fawcett wrote a really important article in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis – which said, we need to collaborate with our families. We need to do collaborative research with our families. We can't just, you know, treat them as subjects. Mm-hmm. We have to collaborate with them. Well, what does collaboration look like? And Turnbull then, out of Kansas, wrote, here's what, there's different levels of collaboration. Mm-hmm. You're the scientist and they collaborate with you. That's one level. Mm-hmm. You are co-scientists, but you still are in the lead. 
And there's another level where they're the scientists and you're empowering them to do the mm -hmm. research. So my work is kind of in the middle there. We're co, we do it together. They are doing just as much of the research piece as I am in, 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 in some respects. You know, they're helping to design, they're, they're collecting data, they're helping to develop the, the intervention, they control the schedule, um, they, they actually determine how quickly we move through the phases. Um, so it's, it's more collaborative. We, we, we bring collaborative research methods into our single case design studies. Does that, does that make oh, sense? Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, no. And so another level of collaboration is when you disseminate, mm -hmm. you disseminate together. Yes. And Ann Turnbull, when I was being mentored by her, she said, Joe, when you go and disseminate your research, do it with the families, mm. have them join you in disseminating. And, and what I found is the voice of the parent mm -hmm. at the conferences is, is in some ways more powerful than the voice of the oh, absolutely. researcher. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one story on that and then I'll stop on this point. So I, I, I'm at an ABAI conference some years ago and it's this family of this little girl, five-year-olds with autism and the family's having a fabulous success. And the father happens to be a member of Toastmasters, meaning he is a skilled public speaker, mm. highly skilled. So we join a symposium that Glenn Dunlap is the discussant mm. for. And I think, um, uh, let's see, Lynn Cagle was one of the presenters and a doctoral student was one of the presenters from another group in doing PBS work mm -hmm. and I was one of the presenters. But I decided to co-present with his father. So I only had 15 minutes or 20 minutes. So I did 15 minutes on the study and he did five minutes about his experience, right? Mm -hmm. And I was the last person in the group to present in this symposium and Glenn's about to do the discussant, you know, five minutes of discussing the different studies. When that father came on, he was so eloquent using metaphor and, you know, all kinds of rhetorical tools to communicate the message that there were tears in the audience. People were tearing up. And Glenn Dunlap, recognizing the moment and how that father really captured the moment he came to the podium and he said, I think enough has been said. Thank you so much. He didn't want to sort of interfere with the power of the father's message. And that's what can happen when you collaborate at that level. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I've heard, I've definitely heard a lot of examples more lately about sort of, um, there's this idea of, uh, of uh, co-production where you know not just families but you know the actual sort of uh, i've seen this quite a bit coming out of australia where you know autistic folks are are involved in every aspect of the research study uh, absolutely uh, including and that's the very presentation. yeah you know if you want your if we want behavior analytic work to be really well received by the public right yeah. then consider the value of doing it collaboratively where they might even be co-authors of the paper. Yes. I've invited parents to be co-authors of papers. In fact, that father is a co-author of that paper. Yeah. And most, you know, parents will say, well, no, no, thank you. I appreciate the offer, but I want to protect my confidentiality. I say, okay, fine. But, you know, when parents collaborate with us so deeply and without them, we could have never succeeded. 
I'll invite them to be an author, co-author, mm -hmm. and they can say yes or no. But that is how I believe we bring this science into the lives of people because they were part and parcel to creating it. And so when you bring it to another parent, it has that resonance, right? Because it was co-created with the actual knowledge user. And in fact, you know, right now in Canada, um, the, uh, the, the um, CIHR, mm -hmm. Um, it's the sort of yeah. federal f funding yeah. group, uh, the council, of, what, sort, what is sort CIHR? Of like the, sort of the NIH of Canada. The CIHR is the NIH of Canada. They have decided because they know, they have decided that we will fund what's called integrated knowledge translation research, mm. particularly in the health field, but also in behavioral health. And NIH is beginning to do the same thing. They now have an implantation science wing mm. where they do their version of integrated health, uh, integ integrated um, uh, knowledge translation mm -hmm. work. They don't call mm -hmm. it that. They call it implementation science sure. work. Sure. But the idea is before you um, do research on your independent variable, you develop it with the knowledge users. Mm. And you make sure they have an equal voice in the way this intervention looks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And once you're certain that it's really something that the knowledge users will, will uh, accept and feasibly do and succeed in, then you test mm -hmm. it empirically. And I recently proposed such a study to NIH um, of my work, FC Family Center PBS. We did not get a great score mm -hmm. and we're going to, you know, try again. Um, it's a long story, yeah. but I won't belabor you with that story. Um, but I really do believe that if behavior analysts began to integrate some impl implementation science mm -hmm. into the way they promulgate their behavior analytic methods and programs, yep. they will have much more success in terms of um, adoption and um, will buy in mm. adoption and sustain use. School-wide PBS is a perfect example sure. of that because in fact, that's what they yeah. did. They have integrated, they have through for 20 years, implementation science has informed the way in which that they've went about developing it. They've developed it with teachers, with principals, with superintendents of school districts from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. If you look at the early authors of the first papers published on school-wide PBS, the, the teacher, the principal, the resource teacher, the superintendent were co-authors of some of these papers. Mm -hmm. And that's why right now school-wide PBS is, well, that's one of the reasons why it's now operating in over 30,000 schools in the United States in many schools in Canada, it's taking hold in yes, Europe. Yes, I've noticed that. It's yes. operating, and also in Australia, yes. and and now it's beginning to take hold in Japan. Mm -hmm. There are now 258 schools in Japan implementing their adapted version, culturally adapted version, of school-wide PBS. Awesome. And so the power of bringing implementation science into applied behavior analytic work is um, incredibly valuable to make sure that all that work we do 
takes hold into the lives of teachers, families, group home staff, or whoever you might be supporting as a behavior analyst. Yeah, really cool. Really cool. The third secret word is Ukraine. Well, Joe, it was a real honor to have you on here. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Ben, for having me on this podcast. Um, this is the first time I ever did a podcast, and so I'm most grateful to you for this opportunity. Um, I wish you all the best, and uh, given the season, I wish you a very happy holiday and a really, really wonderful start to the new year. Bye-bye.